In the beginning, there was darkness. Then, there was Paul Brown. Paul Brown transformed the game. Hello, Paul Brown here. Welcome to the first ever International Browns Podcast. Good morning, London. Yes, I'm back in London and it's all kicking off. LA Chargers to London. But anyway, we're not even going to discuss that. I'm here with Ian Wright, right, right. Ian, how are you, sir? I am good. I'm getting some feedback audio. I can hear you fine, so that's all fine my side. Okay, good, good, good. I'm good, I'm good. I'm uh, back in Chicago. I spent the weekend in Ohio and uh, I'm now back in Chicago. So we're all back in our necessary areas of the lands. Excellent. And uh, apologies to all my regular listeners. I do a podcast every day. We actually recorded one yesterday at Denver Airport and the files were corrupt. So I've let everyone down, my friends, my family, and all the Browns community. So I'm sorry. I guess they're going to have to live. But I will confirm, Paul is at work. So, you know, for all those people that don't think Paul has a job and just is a, a Browns fan, uh, he is at work. All right, excellent. Let's like to Denver and then get right into work. So, hat tip to you, my friend. I got the three upgrade, so I got a bed. So I slept on the plane. It was amazing. But let's get straight into the game. Obviously, we've had um, one, two days to digest everything now. How did it look for you on TV? You know, the odd part about the game is the Browns go into the game thinking we need to control the penalties, we need to keep the turnovers low, we need to dominate time of possession. You know, all of the kind of the check marks, you know, when you talk about stats like a team like New England, where when they win the turnover margin, their record is insanely good. When they do all of these things, their record is insanely good. Well, the Browns have now found a way to where the common guy watching at home on TV watches the game, sees the Brown mar- Browns march up and down the field, seven out of 10 drives getting into the, uh, to the scoring zone, dominate time of possession, win the turnover battle, have less penalties, uh, not even allow the other team a play inside your own red zone and lose the game. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like that. So I'm watching this game from home. I'm watching it with friends of ours. Shout out to Amanda and Alex who allow us to stay this weekend. I'm watching the game and they're looking at me like, how are the Browns not winning this game? And I think that was the resounding, you know, message across the Browns entire fan base. And I think one of the reasons, and I even put on Twitter that, you know, the loss hurts, this one hurts because we just watched our team dominate, you know, this, this, this offensively challenged team, but give up all these large plays and, you know, and hat tip to Cortland Sutton. I mean, that was a great play on the first touchdown over Denzel Ward, you know, but it was like, how did we lose this game? I know, mate. And I just got to think like, why isn't Odell Beckham doing that, you know? Well, it's funny. We had mentioned earlier uh, in podcasts about how we needed a player to step up and make a play. And here we are. We're, we're down five. We're driving. Odell makes a brilliant catch over the defender, scrambles, you know, 30, 40-odd yards into Denver territory, and you're thinking, oh, baby, here comes the moment. 
momentum. We're going to get moving now. Like, we're going to punch this thing in. And I think Freddie Kitchens even said it in one of his post games was, up until the time it was, you know, taking knees at two minutes, I think the Browns fully believed they were going to win that game because, you know, it's one of those games where you watch like Baltimore and Pittsburgh over the years where they are outplayed or they just an ugly game. But at the end of the day, they come out winning. And I kind of felt that that's maybe what the Browns thought is when they got that touchdown to bring it to 24-19, we're just going to drive down, punch in a late touchdown, win a game we shouldn't have won because we were giving up big plays back to Cleveland. And well, you know, that fourth down and all the other stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, the Browns take another loss, moved to two and six on the season, and the fan base is up in arms and all the Monday morning quarterbacks are, you know, back on their front lawns with uh, picket signs. And picket I've got to say, the atmosphere was the best I've heard in my short NFL fan base career. It was people jumping up and down, banging their feet, banging the stadium. It was so loud in there. And uh, no one else really has commented on that. Uh, from the so from the uh, Browns beat writers, but it was really really tough, and I, I felt sorry for Baker being out there on third downs with all the noise that the Bronco fans were making. Well, and that's the, one of the benefits to being a home team. And I actually think that I heard a snippet from um, Odell Beckham yesterday where he said, you know, how how the place was really loud and noisy, and I think that may have attributed a little bit to the Browns having to burn that second time out. Oh. Um, in the second half because they weren't lined up right. And Jarvis saw that Odell uh, was going to get called for a penalty. And then also on that play where Odell had beaten Harris down the sidelines. Um, and I think he even said right there, he goes, you know, that place was loud. That place was crazy. And, you know, 10 times out of 10, I'm looking to Jarvis because, you know, of the, the play design or whatever. So I think o Odell even maybe pointed that out a little bit later about how that place was ruckus. And that doesn't surprise me. Broncos fans are some passionate people. And, as we've talked about, the Browns have a target on their back. They have teams who, you know, ultimately over the summer, we are the media darling. You know, Baker was getting love. He's on all the commercials. Odell's getting love. Tight ends are getting love. I mean, everybody and their mother, David Njoku's all over NFL Network. Well, what that did is that created an animosity amongst players because the Browns have not arrived. I mean, the Browns have not done anything to earn the respect of anybody across the league. But the thing is, is they have such a sorrow, sad story that when they have the potential of winning, the media is going to go full Tim Tebow mode where they do nothing but, you know, shower them with praise. Well, these other teams are now like, well, when we go into their houses, they want to beat us. The fans are going to be extra riled up. Look at the names on our roster. The other teams are going to be riled up. Hey, we want to beat these guys. We want to shut them up. We're going to go out there and give them our, their best shot. And I just don't think the Browns at this point have been ready for that because we saw a Denver team a couple weeks ago against Kansas city look offensively inept. And then they come out and hit big plays. I mean, ever since Emmanuel Sanders has gone, Noah fans become an actual legitimate player where he couldn't catch a cold earlier this season. So the Browns are just doing a very good job of bringing out the best performances in other teams. And I think that's one of the direct results of like you're saying, you're being in a stadium and mile high is ruckus. That's why it's going to be so loud because people do not like the Browns. I've got to say, where have all our long plays gone? You know, like you even saw Denver, the rookie quarterback, try it against us. You know, he had a uh, long throw. I don't seem like the, the Baker to Callaway against the Saints, them type of plays, where have they been all season? 
So I think that that is definitely a great question. And I actually think that I heard uh, Joe Thomas talk a little bit about it yesterday on Cleveland Browns Daily. And he had said, it's in essence, it's part of play design. You know, you have somebody in the box where we have plays set up where we're going to be Odell. You know, these are Odell plays. These are Jarvis plays. These are man beaters. These are zone beaters. And he even pointed out that, you know, back in the day when they had Josh Gordon, that Norv Turner would say, you can, you can bet your house that at some point in the first quarter, I am sending Josh on a vertical. And the Browns, you know, last year under Hugh Jackson ran four verts, nine routes all day long and had these, you know, 20 second developing routes and couldn't pass. And then Greg and Freddie come in and kind of truncated all that down and said, you know, we're going to do a lot of underneath, but then we're going to mix in a Brashad Perriman over the top. I think Freddie is maybe maybe they're a little bit worried about, you know, the offensive line play, which I thought was pretty good against Denver, considering their top, top three defense. Um, but they definitely do need to stretch the field vertically. Um, I think they pointed out that the number of throws that were beyond 10 and 20 yards were such a small percentage of the plays. You know, I think that Freddie and the coaching staff really need to reevaluate, you know, how they're doing it because a lot of these mesh routes and under concepts are starting to cross over. And actually, if you look at that final play, you know, obviously Odell has the, you know, the, the hitch and go on the outside, breaks coverage from Harris, but Jarvis and Demetrius Harris. So Demetrius Harris is running, you know, from the left side of the formation across the seam on almost like a kind of a, a seam crosser. And then Landry's coming on an underneath from the right side. Landry beat his man off the line and had several yards of separation and was wide open at the fourth down marker. So it wasn't necessarily the play design as much as it was Baker waited. So what happened was is the defender from Demetrius Harris drops down and now offers like a double team on Landry because they're sitting there in zone. They see that Baker's staring down Jarvis. Boom, he steps up. And the defender that makes the play isn't even the play, uh, defender that's assigned to Jarvis. He's just picking him up as he's coming across the zone. So I think Freddie and Todd Munkin really need to look into that and saying, hey, why aren't we using Callaway deep? Why aren't we sending Odell? Because at the end of the day, if we throw three or four 50-50 balls to Odell Beckham down the sideline, look what he did against the Jets. One-handed catches. Look what he did against, um, was it Seattle, where he made that beautiful catch on the sidelines. I mean, this guy can make plays in the air. And I know he's not Julio Jones in six foot four, but you can do PI calls. I mean, I saw one yesterday in the Dallas Giants game. Amari Cooper got touched. They threw a flag on it. 40-yard penalty. So I, I definitely wouldn't be shocked if come against Buffalo, who's also got a good defense, we maybe see some more shots downfield because I think you're 100% right. And that's a great observation that they've really kind of truncated the passing game to more of a West Coast style underneath passing game, which I think has really limited the offense. I've got to say, it was, the adrenaline was pumping when Odell in the fourth quarter was going down. I was just absolutely electrified and buzzing and just thinking, this is our moment, this is our moment. And yeah, boom. But one thing I want to talk about, Ian, was I met Freddie Kitchens in May for the charity event. And I met him also this weekend in the lift. He was actually staying at the same hotel, same floor as me. And we had a nice conversation. His wife asked me how long the flight was from London. I said, thank you a lot. Thank you, Freddie, for your support in the charity. And, yeah, we talked about a few personal things. But just with his body language, me picking up, he just seems quite a negative or quite a reserved person at the moment. 
And I'm starting to be worried that, like, is he... Everything that he says in the media, everything you see him on the pitch, he seems to be really stressed. And I, I do start to wonder, is this actually right for him being head coach? You know, it is something I think some people have taken notice to. You know, his demeanor with the media has changed a little bit. Um, he's less joking. I mean, he still gets his little pop shots. But the one thing, you know, that people that have obviously played in the NFL, as I have and have told me, a 16-game season to the fans flies by. To players, to coaches, to everybody involved, it is a very long and grueling season. And we are nine weeks in. And I think sometimes people forget, you know, part of the NFL Players Association is they get Tuesdays off and bye weeks they get, they get off. Coaches do not have that luxury. And I mean, you'll ask a lot of former players why they don't want to get into coaching. It's because of the number of hours that they put in. So I would have no doubt that here we are two and a half, three months into the season and Freddie Kitchens has put in those seven, 16 hour days a day for that entire time. And he has not spent time with his family. I'm sure sometimes with road games, they like it because they do get a couple hours where, you know, he gets to spend time with his wife. But I think Freddie is, you know, going through the trials and tribulations that a first time head coach goes through. And, you know, I, I wish I could remember exactly who tweeted it, um, but I saw a breakdown of head coaches that everybody knows, you know, the Holmgrens, the Andy Reeds, the um, Tom Landry's and what their records were after their first eight games. And I will tell you, they're not pretty. A lot of one and sevens, two and sixes and three and fives. So I think becoming a head coach takes time, takes you know, repetitions. I mean, I think that Freddie's done a better job. You know, Browns fans have an unfortunate thing of being Monday morning quarterbacks where Freddie Kitchens does not. You know, he's a competitor. I mean, you can just look at it. Look at the look on his face at the end of the game. They take it personal. Look at Baker. Freddie Kitchens is not taking losses very well. And that to me is a good thing. You don't want to become complacent. And while I don't want the man to go through obviously you know stresses like that because we know he's had heart issues but um you know it it does, it does afford me a little bit of luxury i want to stress it that. has no i have no doubt yeah exactly imagine you're in the stands we're talking about as a fan the gut punch can you imagine what the first two hours after that game feels like to a player and to a coach yeah and I want to stress at this point is that obviously uh, Freddie Kitchen, I, I back him 100% and uh, I'm not on the uh, bandwagon of let's get Mike McCarthy in or whoever whoever's potentially linked. Let, let's stay with him and uh, let's see what he does at the end of the season and uh, give him one more season at least, I think. But uh, it's Dorsey's decision, not mine. Yeah. And the one benefit Freddie does have is he has Steve Wilkes who went through last year with Arizona, what it's like being a head coach for one year. So you talk about, you're talking to a guy who literally just went through it. And before the season, Todd Monken's name was a hot topic for, to be a head coach in the future. So this may be something where Monken looks at it and says, Hey, I see all the stuff Freddie's been through because we forget sometimes these guys are spending all day, all night at that facility, game planning and all that stuff. And then every day, Tuesday, when Monday, Tuesday, whenever, I forget what day they don't speak to the media. They're spending all that time. That's tough. I mean, they got to get up there and answer questions about practice and injury reports. And I think a lot of times coordinators forget that. So when they become head coaches, they don't realize how much of their time 
is being taken towards media and taken towards other things, the Freddie Kitchen show, the this show, the that show. You know, there's a lot of obligations. So I think the more that Freddie's in it, the more he's around it, the more he's going through it, the better he's going to get. Because I do think that Freddie has done a great job of, you know, just being able to control. Listen, I know there's all these stories about the locker room and the beat reporters were asking about, you know, cleats being a larger indication. I, I don't buy that. I mean, we're talking about grown men, not kids. The ESPN site up sometimes. Let me know when you're recording. Yeah, go again. Talk about the cleats again. Yeah, so, you know, people talk about the larger indication of the cleats. And, you know, I just don't think that's a thing. And Lance Moore even went on Twitter earlier and said, for all those people <coughs> making that, like, it's not a big deal. Like, Nike and Jarvis and Nike and Odell sit down and figure out combinations. And maybe they got one wrong or they thought it was brown. But that's stuff from fun to go. You know, so it's not a big deal. They No coach is looking at a player's cleats. You know, if they get fined for wearing cleats, Freddie doesn't care. Like, that's on them. That's not some larger indication of like locker room malfunctions. Like that's just a non thing. I think anybody that's been in a locker room, you know, and competed with teammates knows it's about the brothers in the locker room, not the cleats they're wearing, you know, or Baker Mayfield's mustache or his Fu Manchu or his beard. Like that's fun stuff. You know, back in 2011, I was working at JP Morgan and just for fun, I went the entire month and didn't and my Dave and I down and went over five different hairstyles and five different mustache and Fu Manchu concepts. And each day I came into work and I had a different hairstyle and a different facial pattern. Was it distracting? Absolutely not. Was it uplifting? Did people find it funny? Absolutely. So you do things like that to kind of boost morale, to lighten the mood, to get people laughing because in a locker room, sometimes you can cut the tension with a knife. So if Baker wants to wear a Fu Manchu because it kind of makes somebody laugh or eases up, that's fine. You know, this isn't some massive distraction. Baker's Fu Manchu is not why he was late coming across the middle of the Jarvis Landry. Odell Beckham's cleats are not the reason we lost the game. You know, it's so many more things other than that. But, these, you know, the common thing now is, well, let's find the hot, the, the media stuff that we want to talk about, the controversial stuff, and write our articles about it. So you know, I think that Freddie has the support of the guys in the locker room. I think that Freddie has the support of the front office, you know, watching him go through growing pains. You know, he's got some very good assistants, the Stump Mitchells, the Ryan Lindley's. You know, he's got good guys around him. It's about execution. It's about blocking. It's about catching. It's about running. You know, so I, that's why I think all that is premature. And I think you're spot on. You know, you've got to give these guys at least two years. We saw how other coaches started. The NFL is a new system. I know Freddie's been in it for a while. You got to stick with them and you got to stick to the growing pains. Mm. One thing I've got to say is that I'm in Denver yesterday morning. I saw Freddie Kitchens the day before, and then suddenly he's popping up on my phone at 11 o'clock in the morning next day, and I'm still in the same hotel where I saw him less than 24 hours ago. So you start thinking about how. Um, with American, you follow, you, you, you have your game, you then fly home, you must get home about midnight, one o'clock, and then you're back at work in Cleveland time, what, nine, ten o'clock, maybe even earlier. 5 a.m. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there's guys, if you're some of your front office people there at four or five, you know, some assistant coaches have been known to sleep in the, you know, in the facilities at times. Um, some coaches now are mandating they go home 
Um, but if you have like, I don't know if you have a coach that's not married or doesn't have family and stuff, they may spend more time there. But yeah, I would say that Freddie's probably leaving 10, 11 o'clock and he's probably back in by five. And, you know, same with John Dorsey and those guys. I mean, you had a run in with Dorsey and you saw how much energy he has. Imagine maintaining that on a day-to-day -day basis because, you know, you just have to, as a leader, you know, sometimes we want to look at like controlling, you know, the students or your players and stuff as being a leader. There's a lot more that goes into it than that. You know, there's a lot more about culture and tone and empowering the people you work for and being a leader. And sometimes we create these false media narratives because those are the easy things to write about. Seeing John Dorsey getting on the bus, he was a totally different person. He was totally in the zone, totally um, different character.